Today we're going to be finishing our series as we've been looking in Hebrews 11. And we've been looking at these heroes of faith who are just like us as people. Um, moments of greatness, of weakness, of failure, feeling broken sometimes, suffering, joy, and all the bits that in between that we as people just live as part of our life, don't we? Experience all of those things. And the people we read about in Hebrews 11 were no different from us. They were just like us in that way. But all of them had a living faith. They were authentic lives they were living. And they revealed the faith that we've been talking about in this series. Uh, a faith that endures, that acts, that is fearless and that is obedient. But all of that was a crescendo. It was all a bit of an hors really. All the people of faith were a bit of an hors They were just to get to whet our appetite a little bit for the kind of the culmination of the pinnacle of what Hebrews 11 is teaching us. As I said in that first sermon when I started the series, that the whole letter uh, of Hebrews is to reveal Christ's supremacy, to teach this Hebrew community. So these people were previously, um, well they were Jews, but Messianic Jews in that they believed Jesus was the Messiah, to teach this community of Hebrews that Jesus was just greater in every way than anything they'd had previously under the law and under, uh, under, being, under Jewish law and under being people um, of Israel, people, the Jewish nation. And we find this hits home most in Hebrews 12. Now often I think we can forget, I don't know about you guys, but I often forget that the Bible, when it was written by you know, these amazing people of faith, inspired by God, didn't have verses and chapters. We've added them in over, over years, probably to make it easier to follow and to give it a sense of like, you know, you can break things down a bit easier, easier to remember when you've got verses, isn't it? If you can remember, oh, it's that chapter, that verse. But the original scriptures never had verses or chapters, particularly like a letter, like Hebrews, it was a letter. And you, re- you don't read a letter going, you, you might quite easily like, but most people just write a letter, don't they? You, you write your letter. So when we read scripture, sometimes we can forget that and we can just read a chapter and not really read around the chapter and understand the context of what the person who wrote it was trying to teach. And we see this in a little bit here. We read Hebrews 11 and we get this amazing picture of these people of faith, these amazing people who have done amazing things, had the faith to see God do amazing things. And then if you don't skip to them and go to the next chapter, you miss the first part in verse 1 or 2. And it says this, Therefore, now you always know if the Bible says therefore, whatever, whenever it says therefore, you might want to go to the bit before it, because it's saying therefore, because it's, it's trying to say, because of that what you've just read, therefore, and it does it, it says therefore, since we are surrounded by so, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Pretty good stuff. But you'd have missed that. If you just read Hebrews 11, you might have missed that. This was the point of Hebrews 11. This is pointing out what the Hebrews writer was trying to teach us. Therefore, because of this, look at this. This crowd of witnesses, these people we've just spoke about, all they do is point us to Jesus. Because he is the author and perfecter. He is the pinnacle of, of, of a life of faith. He lived 
faithfully a perfect life, obedient even to death on a cross. Now the writers of the New Testament were familiar with things like the Olympic Games, um, which were around about 500 years before the, the people who wrote the scriptures in the New Testament were around. Um, in, so the Olympic Games existed in Greece, and every city of a, of a, of a large size would probably have some form of stadium where athletic kind of contest would have been held. And among many of the games was the foot race or running. Running was a common um, was a common kind of thing you can do. Most people can run, and um, most people are able to do that, you know. So it was a common exercise, a common competition to run, to see who was the fastest runner, to see who was the best long distance runner, to see who could, you know, run across various terrains and, and be the first to finish. And as a means of dramatizing the need for discipline in the Christian life, Paul particularly um, drew a lot of analogies from the athletic games that we read about, like that we, we know about, particularly running and things like boxing, to illustrate the need for discipline and control in, it, in the Christian life. You see, every athlete exercises discipline and self-control. If you're an elite-level athlete, athlete, you know what it means to be disciplined. Your diet is disciplined. Your exercise regime is disciplined. Your sleep is disciplined. Everything you do is disciplined. You don't, you, you, your, your hobby, your time you spend doing stuff is disciplined. You won't find an elite level athlete, like, and obviously I know I'm not, which is why I probably do this, sitting watching hours of Netflix. They just won't do it because they're too disciplined. You can't spend hours doing that. You need to be spending those hours doing things that matter. You know, sleeping to regain your energy, eating the right foods. Exercising, do perfecting your art form. But they all do it to receive what the Bible calls like a perishable wreath. When Paul talks about it, he talks about it being a perishable wreath. It says, do not run aimlessly, do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. So Paul's saying we should be like these athletes, we should be disciplined, we should um, pummel our bodies into submission like an athlete does, be fully disciplined, knowing that we are in control in that sense of, of what we do with our time, our energy, where we put our thoughts, we need to be like an athlete in the way we live our Christian life. Now we might, some of us probably know it better than others, some of us might have forgotten, but most of us know what it's like to run a race, it's been a long time since I've run any race. Um, I, I did at school. I quite liked running. I was never a hundred meter sprinter, but I was good on the two hundred meters because I wasn't fast enough on the hundred to, to win. But over two hundred, as a teenager, you won't see it now. I could keep the same pace for the whole two hundred. So I was a good two hundred meter runner, but I was never a hundred meter sprinter. So it's been a long time since I've run a race. But what we do know is there's a start line, there's a finish, and there's often a prize, isn't there? And it requires discipline, sacrifice and focus to accomplish the goal. And all along the way, there are often obstacles, you know, like I said, in your training, it might be you're actually in a race that has obstacles, and they did the steeplechase, or whatever it's called, that steeple, is it that one where they have to jump over stuff? There are races that actually have obstacles on them as well. But life has obstacles in our way that slow us down. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember being in primary school, stood in the line, or your teacher there, or everyone in your class just stood there waiting for the teacher to say go. You might have had an egg and a, on a spoon at the time. You might have been in a sack ready to go. You might have just been doing the run, whatever it was. Does anyone remember that from school? School sports day? Yeah. 
it was, it was, a, it was a tough time, slight, it was brutal, but it was fun. I loved it. As I said a minute ago, the concept of racing is one of the many metaphors used by the authors of the New Testament to describe the Christian life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, that in an effort to win the imperishable crown, not like these imperishable reefs that the Olympians won, but an imperishable crown, he runs in such a way that he may win. He says in Philippians 2.16 that he did not want to run in vain. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, at the end of his life he said, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. But I think there's no clearer picture of the race that we run as Christians than that's found in that verse I've just read from Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 2. Now if you're a Christian today, you are running a race. You are in the some of us are early in our race, some of us are in the middle of our race, some of us are further on in our race towards the end. But we're all in the race. And for some of us, the pace is really fast and you're running really hard. You're in the stride, Christ has your heart. You just feel like you're on the floor. You, you know, you, you're in the vibe of Jesus, man. You're on it. You're running well. You can feel it. Just things are moving in the right place. For others, the pace might feel slow. You might feel weighed down by the distractions of, in your life or held back by sin. And for others, they've forgotten they're in a race altogether. Some aren't even racing. When was the last time you thought about your life as a race, your Christian life as a race, or your life generally as a race? You know, maybe like me, at times, you're complacent and sin creeps into your heart at times and you're forgetful or distracted and preoccupied by the business of life and things that are going on around you, that your efforts just decrease a little bit and the goal of our eyes being on Jesus just falls away a little bit. It does happen. Like even to, you know, you won't find a preacher who stands at the front who doesn't have those moments. Like if they say they don't, I would have questions. Like all of us, we're not, none of us are beyond the weariness. None of us are beyond feeling like we're feeling bad. None of us are beyond that sense of, oh, I'm just like, I don't feel like I've got what it takes to run this race at the moment. See, the writer of Hebrews, knowing that our tendency is to drift, probably because their tendency was the same, like that's the just like us, they were no different than us. He gives us these verses to put our minds back into the race. He helps us with understanding the reasons why we're running and why it's difficult. And he gives us that ultimate motivation to keep running. And I think in a nutshell it's this. When your eyes are taken off Christ, you will struggle to run. When you forget or you get preoccupied or concerned with other things, you'll find it difficult to run. And I have three very simple points I want to share with you today. And it's this. On your mark, get set, go. I think we all know that one. Have we all heard that before in our lives? On your marks, get set, go. So on your marks, or on your mark. Look at the first phrase in verse 1. Therefore, since we have such a great crowd of witnesses surrounding us, see this therefore again, remember, what does it do? It pushes us back, doesn't it, into Hebrews 11, chapter 11, where we're looking at these famous people, heroes of faith, you know, as the author is recounting the lives of those people from the Old Testament, the saints and, the, and these awesome prophets and people of God. You see, when we enter into that stadium, to continue the analogy, 
We see that we're not the race. Our race isn't the first race. We're not the first race of the day. Others have run this race before us, living lives of faith and dependence on God. And they've already crossed that finish line. Men like Moses, Joseph and David. Women like Sarah and Rahab who triumphed through their faith. They've run that race already. They've finished it. And we might sit here this morning thinking, well, of course you're going to be talking about people like Moses and David. They're a completely different calibre than me. Like, they're in a different world. You know, that's a different level of individual. These Old Testament heroes compared to me. I'm not even close. How can you even compare my life to those? It's not a fair comparison. But I think if, if you have that, I want to challenge that this morning. I think if, if you feel like that, you've not fully understood what the writer of Hebrews is trying to teach us. Because the point the author is trying to make is that these men and women didn't accomplish great things because they were amazing people. God took normal people and he did so much through them because of their faith. Think of the lives of the people who were mentioned in there. Moses was a stuttering murderer. Abraham was a liar. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer. Sarah was a doubter. That's not a list of perfect people, is it? It's a list of people who are just like us. Who put their trust in God and then watch them do amazing things. And as we enter the stadium, the idea is not only that this great cloud of witnesses is there cheering us on, although they are, and that cloud of witnesses grows. You know, how many amazing people of God have you met in your life who are now with Jesus? They've become part of that cloud of witnesses. Amazing like, people of faith, like who we know, who we read about now, who have, have now gone to be with God, who have seen amazing things, and we, we read their books, we see the stuff they've done, we hear their stories. They're part of that cloud of witnesses cheering us on now. But it's more than that. Because part of it is that actually their lives testify to us. Their lives are witness to us that we walk down the same path as they did. We live in the same fallen world. We share the same sinful, sinful tendencies and we run the same race that they ran. There's differences, but it's the same ultimate race, isn't it? It's the race to Jesus. And the reality is that these men and women and all before us have been, this race has been run for thousands of years. We're not the first to run it, but their lives testify to us that it's a good race, don't they? So there's no promise that this race will be easy. That this, you know, there's no promise this race is downhill with the wind on your back. In fact, we know we're going to be confronted with trials and difficulties on a daily basis. The Bible teaches us that to follow Jesus is to suffer. We will suffer for the cross. We will suffer for following Jesus. It's not saying this race is going to be easy. In fact, it's saying this race at times will be grueling. This race at times will feel brutal on your life. This race at times will fit will feel like it's breaking you. It'll feel like it's too much to bear. You know, whether it be things like health concerns, conflict at work, family issues, losing loved ones, addiction, things might crop up and you come up in your life where you feel like the race is too much. But the encouragement is that this great cloud of witnesses that we read about, they've run that race. We're not the only ones who are running. Others have run the race before us and finished well. And we can look to them. We can, as ourselves, seek God ourselves and trust in the same way they did that his plan for our life is good. 
We can trust in the same way they did that. God knows the path he has created for us. He knows the step he will take. He has planned the course of our life. He knows who we are. So like them, we can trust that we will finish well in the end. And that brings us to the second half of verse 1. As the writer turns his attention to those who are now running. And it gives us some instruction. So if we look at the second half of verse 1, it says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. See, any, any race that you see on the Olympics, if you watch all the Commonwealth Games, which are going to be happening in Birmingham, which obviously, hopefully by that point, we'll be living in, me and Sarah and Matilda will be living in Birmingham. They always call out, don't they, on your mark. And this is the indication that the race is about to start. Athletes are called to the line, and like them, we're given specific instructions. See, they'll be told, they're being told, get ready, get yourself in a position to start this race. It's the same for us, on your mark. We're being told, put aside the things that you don't need to run this race. Put aside the things that prevent you from running this race well. And there's two different categories that are mentioned in these verses, and we're just going to look at them in turn. And the first are things that distract. Lay aside every weight. In other translations, it talks about the word encumbrance, which, is, which kind of is that sense of a hindrance or something that impediment, something that literally is bulky and weighs you down. See, these are the things that would slow a runner down. You don't see a runner at the start of a race with, with jumpers on, you know, with, a heavy, you know, with heavy coats, jeans, rigger boots on, a backpack full of heavy things. You don't see races that there. They literally strip off everything that is going to hinder them from running well. And it's the same for us in our life as a Christian. We need to take anything off that distracts. And while these things are often not sinful in themselves, are they? Let's be honest. Most of the things that distract us aren't sinful in and of themselves. These are things that can slow us down if they're not kept in their, their proper place. If we allow them to become more than they should be. That could include lots of things. Some things that we even consider good that can become the distractions that weigh us down. Things like sometimes, that can include things like families, hobbies, social media, sports and even ministries. Even things we do in the church at times. What are the things that weigh you down? What are the things that distract you? Things that maybe aren't wrong in your life and of themselves, but can pull you away and weigh you down. You know, I know for me, I, I sometimes I like gaming, and I go through seasons where I game. But I know that if I go, sometimes like I'll, I won't play for months, but then when I go into a season of gaming, it, I know it becomes a distraction. I can tell you one thing that I know distracts me regularly, is this, the phone. It's not, phones aren't sinful though, are they? not a sinful thing, it's a great tool, it offers great opportunities to connect, it offers opportunities to, to do things, but actually it can become a distraction from what actually God is asking. Hobbies, you know, other things that can take, now none of them things are wrong, but you, we need to know how to manage them so that they don't become distractions. So don't, that, don't hear me saying you should stop doing everything, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you should know in your heart. And I think as I've spoken, some of you guys have probably thought of things, because I know I have as I've been preparing. Things that I'm going, yeah, I've allowed that to become a distraction. It's taken a seat 
that doesn't belong to it. It's taking the seat Jesus belongs on sometimes, like I've allowed it to. But we need to learn to put those things down. The Christian life is hard enough on its own, you know. Let's be honest, being a Christian is not an easy life. So why would you want all these things that distract you and weigh you down? Why would you want the extra weight? How can you run? How can you give anything to Christ when you're bogged down with loads of unnecessary distractions? See, my challenge, one of my challenges to you today is to consider what these things are in your life. And as I say, I think, as I've been speaking about some of them, I think God's been poking. I think some of us have felt a little pang of like, you actually have allowed this thing to become a distraction in my life. What I want you to do is consider them, to identify them, and then seek to lay them aside. Now that's not saying you stop doing all these things because I'm not saying they're wrong, but it might be that you set limits on the amount of time you watch TV. You delete certain apps from your phone that are become distracting or become you know, an addiction or something that you can't put down. Whatever it is, you know, I think in your hearts, we're not, like, I'm not going to give you an egg and say suck it. Because I know that we all know the things in our life that have become distractions most of the time. We're very aware of them. We just struggle to be able to put them down. I would encourage you to speak to someone that you trust, that you're close to. Say, look, I just know this thing has been distracting me. And I'd really value if you were to help me so that I can put it down. Like, can, can I be accountable to you and tell you about it? So I've been struggling. I watch way too much TV at night, you know, I'm, and I, this is like me confessing to, to run. I watch way too much TV at night. I spend, you know, I get home from work and I have a tough day and I put Matilda to bed and then I sit down and I just watch TV and I don't do much else. Can I be accountable to you so that, you know, I'll come and tell you, like, you can ask me, I'll give you permission to ask me, how much TV have you been watching the past week? It's hard, but I'll tell you what, it's worth it. Because when you know you can trust someone with that stuff, they will keep you accountable and you'll find that then things begin to fade away, those distractions, and you'll find the things that are really important. You know, being in the Word of God, prayer, worship, serving your community, loving people in your community, sharing the gospel, evangelising, doing the things that are actually important, furthering the kingdom of God, the stuff that's really going to make a difference. And the other category is things that destroy. See, too often the things that distract us can be a gateway to things that destroy us. Gaming's not wrong. Being addicted to games is wrong. You know, it's important that we know the things that would distract us. The, the author not only warns us about the encumbrance and the weight, but says, lay aside, dot, 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 their bits, and sin which clings so closely. Now, another translation, it talks about sin that entangles us. Like that sense of being completely entangled and wrapped up to the point you can't move. Now, if you, if you put your arm and leg into a bush and it wrapped around you and you couldn't move properly, you're not going to then walk into the bush and think, you know, this is a good idea. You're going to be trying to get away from it. The Bible teaches us to flee from sin. That's fleeing isn't something. Anyone who has had to flee, if you meet someone who's taken asylum in this country who's fled. Ask them what it means to flee. They won't say it's a really nice thing. They'll say, I was fleeing from my life. I was fleeing from death. I was fleeing from... It's fleeing. When the Bible talks about fleeing, these are people who you want me to flee from stuff. 
like there was war and stuff, things going on in the time these things were written. When you fled from something, it wasn't like a, I'll just walk away nice and calmly. You were running for your life. That's what we should do from sin. We should run from it, like, because our life depends on it. So if, if sin entangles us, the last thing we want to do is start to toy with it a little bit. You know, let's, let's, um, let's just play with it a little bit more. Sin it entangles us, it baits us, it traps us. It causes us to forget that we're even in the race. When we read scripture, we see sin mastered people like Cain to the point he killed his brother. It cost Esau his inheritance, Samson his eyes. It turned Solomon's heart from God, turned David into an adulterer. I could go on for ages about the things sin did in, in the scriptures. You know, we're not short of examples of where sin entangles people in scripture. You can't mess around with sin. You can't be entertained. You must flee from it because it's seeking to destroy you. See, if you're to run that race of faith, you must lay aside those things that distract you and those things that destroy you. Which brings me to my next point, which is secondly, the announcer calls out, get set. So on your mark, get set. This is the part of the race, like whenever you see them, I love watching, the 100 meter sprint is the thing, isn't it? Like when you're watching the Olympics, everyone wants to watch the 100 meter sprint. It's like the shortest event of all being like under 10 seconds, but the anticipation is massive for the 100 meter sprint. You see them there and it's like they're, they're just set up, they're shaking themselves off, aren't they? Like massive legs and muscles and they're shaking off like calm as anything, taking off the layers, getting ready. And it's like on your mark and they're there and they're down, they're on their knees, you know, they're kind of shaking off still, they're just they're testing the ground, clearing it away, they're getting ready, they're putting the feet in the blocks. Now they're getting ready. Have you noticed like the unison when the, when the commentator says, get set? Like the hands are on that line, and you know it's all that like their backs go. It's like a dog that's about to attack. Like it's like everything goes stiff and they're like, and they're focusing ahead. They're ready to go. Get set. They're ready to go. They're not messing around. They're not kind of like get set. In a minute. Like no, they're ready. They're like hounds, ready to pounce and go. Get set. Their eyes, they're kneeling. They pop up and they're all focused on the goal. Eyes ahead. Not distracted, not thinking of anything else. Before the gun goes off, they're focusing on that finish line, aren't they? They're already looking ahead. See, we, it's the same for us. Before that gun goes off, you take that final look at the finish line. And verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We should be like that. Get set, eyes on Jesus. To run the race well, we must, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. We can't be bogged down looking everywhere else. See, that the Greek, when it talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus, has this idea of looking away from anything else. It's almost like you're blanking it out. It doesn't exist. Jesus is our only prize, is our goal, is our ambition. And in Colossians 1, verse 18, it says that he is to have first place in everything. See, we're to put blinders on. Have you ever seen a horse with blinders? Like, it gives them tunnel vision, doesn't it? Like a horse, when it has the blinders, it doesn't see anything else around it. It just focuses. We, and we should be like that. Our eyes should be set on Christ in this moment and the next. And in every moment, he's to fill our hearts, 
in our minds, is to be in all of us, is supposed to fill us. And when we find that it's not, or that we're not fully focused on him, when sometimes maybe sin is holding sway on us in our heart, we need to realign ourselves with our eyes straight again on Jesus. Because we'll find everything we need in Jesus to overcome. Like when more than conquerors in Christ, we can overcome anything. Sin, death is overcome through Christ. And then we look to the scriptures, and then again we can be filled with faith. Like when you read scripture, it fills you with faith that we, you know, whatever's going on, God is enough in every situation. You see it clearly, the life of the Hebrews 11, that, that's what it teaches us. Like in every context, God is for us. He is enough to get us through. He is enough to sustain. He is enough to keep us alive. He is enough to, to kind of give us everything we need. We don't need more than that. He is our daily bread. He's everything. And in, notice in verse 2 how it says that Jesus is both the author and perfected, or the founder and perfecter of faith. See, because Jesus was there in the beginning. When we were saved, we were saved first because Jesus laid the foundation for the cross and resurrection. He's there. He's the gate in which we enter salvation. There isn't any other way. The Bible's clear. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. So he's there at the beginning. As we are welcomed into God's kingdom, it is Jesus who welcomes us, us through because he is the one who won salvation for us. He's also there at the end, taking us into, his, into our, our eternal time and life with him when he returns. So the text tells us that Jesus ran his own race. He kept the course. Verse 2 says that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even in the worst kind of humiliating death, he did not get distracted or turned aside. See, one commentator talks about how on the cross, Jesus plumbed the furthest depths of human shame. And what that's saying is that on the cross, Jesus endured the worst form of humiliation and shame. Yet he didn't allow his suffering of the cross to tear him from his goal. He didn't allow that suffering and shame to take his eyes off the prize, what he was doing it for. It says that, why did he do it? It says, for the joy set before him. Now that's crazy, isn't it? To think, like, you know, I think of the garden where Jesus is in the garden and he says, you know, he said, if, if anyone can take a cup from me, please. But not my will, but yours. Jesus, the joy set before him, suffered death on the cross. What was that joy? What was it that he enjoyed? What was his prize? Well, it was completing the mission if you will, that he was set out to do, he's completing the race that he set out. The joy was us. Where the joy? He did it to save us from sin and death. We were the prize, and he accomplished the will of his father by doing it, and now he is seated, as verse 2 tells us, on the right hand of the throne of God. And there he rules and he reigns as our hero. Have you ever heard the term goods? Like in sport, you hear the term someone used the, the goat, they are the goats. And what it means, goat is just an acronym for greatest of all time. So if you're in a basketball conversation, there'll always be an argument, who is the goat? Is it LeBron James or Michael Jordan? One of them is the goat. I'm a Michael Jordan lad, probably because I'm a 90s kind of lad and, and seeing Michael Jordan play in the 90s, I believe Michael Jordan ultimately is the goat. LeBron? 
LeBron James, yeah, a lot of injuries think LeBron beats Jordan. I, I think they, um, they need to kind of reevaluate their lives. But no, MJ for me is the goal. He just he paved the way. You might hear about boxing. Who's considered the goal in boxing? Greatest of all time? Muhammad Ali. There's no doubt. He didn't have to win every fight. Being the greatest of all time doesn't mean that you win everything. But it's just he brought something that never been seen before in boxing in all of history. And no matter who comes, characters, people, they'll never sh overshadow Muhammad Ali. He'll always be the greatest of all time. Now, I wonder if that's because as we get older, we, we always think before better. Maybe someone will come, but for me, it's him. This is saying, these verses say Jesus, Jesus is the goal. Hebrews is about teaching us that Jesus is the goal. He is the greatest of all time. That was the whole point of the letter. These Hebrews were like worrying and panicking. They were like, oh no, like we're being, we're being hurt for our beliefs, we're being you know, tortured, we're being flogged, we're being kind of, we're suffering for the belief for, for now. We're coming, you know, we're now following Jesus. And it hasn't brought us any joy, like we're suffering for it. And then the whole of the letter of Hebrews is saying, yeah, but Jesus, you, he's the greatest high priest. Like, he is the good high priest. He is the good in, you know, in, 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 as a sacrifice. So he sacrificed animals in the last, Jesus is the good, he's the ultimate sacrifice, he's the greatest of all time. It's basically saying Jesus is the best, the best of the best of the best. And because he's the best of the best of the best, it means now that he's seated on the throne, at the right hand side of God. Now he is on that throne of grace. As we cry out to him, as we ask of him, as we plead for him as, our, as his people, and we call on that, as Hebrews 4 calls it the, the throne of grace, he's there as our great high priest to intercede for us. He, he is there and offers us mercy and help in our times of need. When we falter on the run, on the race, when we trip, when we fall, he's there to encourage us, to give us it, and to remind us that no matter how shameful our sin, no matter how much guilt we feel, his grace is so much deeper and greater than our deepest sin. Jesus is our ultimate model. Like, he finished the race as perfect. He ran the perfect race. And now we are called to fix our eyes on him. Not to fix on our sin or our failings, but on him. And as we do, it extinguishes that that kind of passion for sin, because as we fix our eyes on Jesus, everything else just falls aside into comparison. It's not worthless. What does Paul say? I consider everything else rubbish. Rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. It's rubbish, all of it. My final point is this, it's a short one. We must go. On your mark, get set, go. You need to run. So we need, and it says, let us run them with endurance the race that is set before us. See, that gun goes off, and we've got to run. You don't see an athlete when the gun goes off just idling around. They're off. It's the same with us. We're, we're told to go, and we, we, we're supposed to come out of the blocks with all, of all, all our effort, with all straining with every fibre of, of, of our body and who we are to run this race. Because you don't win by taking it easy. You don't win when you're distracted. And Paul says we should run as if we're going to win. He, I ran to win. He didn't say I ran because it was nice to run. Paul ran to win. It's not easy. We all have headwinds when we, you know, in our journey. We all have things that want to hold us back, struggles, difficulties. But we're called to run with endurance. That word endurance gives us the idea of what the run's like, doesn't it? 
an endurance race isn't doesn't means it's not going to be easy. Endurance means you're going to struggle at times. It's going to you're going to have to dig deep into who you are to finish. Notice that he says the race the race that is set before us. See the race is different for each of us, for each one of us. You know whether you your race involves physical ailments. For some, it's a struggle with finance. Some, it's family relationship challenges. We all have different seasons of life, and the course that is set for you is different than the course that is set for others. It's the same race, because the prize is always Jesus. But the race is different for us all, the challenge is different based on who we, our, the journey that we have in our lives. But we're all called to run. You have unique challenges that face you, but what I can tell you is that you're called to run and God promises he'll be with you. We all run our race through those challenges and those difficulties which are unique but there's only one aim there's only one goal and there's only one prize and that's Jesus so what does all this mean for us to finish it means that if we have Jesus as our Lord and Saviour our prize then we have the very best of everything we have the goat in all things we have all we need God has made him our prophet our priest our king the Bible talks about Jesus as our righteousness, our hope, our joy, and our crown. He's all those things. Jesus is truly all in all that we need. And we stand complete in him. How blessed are we to say that we are Christ's? And what else does the Bible say? That he belongs to us too. He's ours. That's like, that blood should blow our minds. See, when we're able to realise that Jesus is to us, Everything else in this world just will fade away. Jesus never... I just want to finish. I just like to finish. I just want to encourage you and kind of speak this over you. Let us never take our eyes off him. Let us never forsake him for anything or anyone in this world. And let's run and run well. Let's run and run well to him and for him. Until he either calls us home or we finish the race. Let's pray. Yeah, Father God, I pray that we would run the race before us, that we would run with vigour, with passion, with determination to you, Jesus. That our eyes would waver, that our focus would remain on you, because you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing else is worthy of, our, of us of our time, our energy, and you. You are the ultimate, the number one, the greatest of all time, the good. And I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged today to run the good race, to run well, to lay aside the things that are, that are distracting us or that are leading us into sin, and keep our eyes focused on the prize, on you, Jesus. Amen.